Hey everyone, it's Elle. Before we start this week's episode, I've got a favor to ask. We've posted a link to a survey in the show description. This is our very first season of The Walk-In and we'd love to get feedback from you on what you're liking, what we could do better, and all that good stuff. It only takes a few minutes, so tell us what you think. And if you do, you'll get a 20% off coupon to the America's Test Kitchen online store. It's good for any cookbook, magazine, or digital download. So help us out and get 20% off. Now, on to the show. restaurant cook knows that the walk-in refrigerator is where you go when you need a moment to cry, to confide in a friend, or to collect your composure. It's the place where the pressure to appear in control falls away, where you're allowed to feel your feelings and get real about the hard stuff. From America's Test Kitchen, I am El Simone Scott, and this is The Walk-In. Today, Lucky Michaels is stepping into the walk-in with me. Lucky is a trans rights activist and mixologist. Most recently, she's been behind the bar at Storico, a restaurant in the New York City Historical Society where she serves up cocktails and history lessons. She was the first trans woman to be featured by the James Beer Foundation, which is huge. Lucky started her career doing advocacy work. She was the director of Sylvia's Place, a shelter for homeless LGBT youth in New York City. The shelter was created as the dying wish of Sylvia Rivera, one of the foundational figures of the trans rights movement. Eventually, Lucky found her way back into the beverage and hospitality world. But her advocacy work for trans, queer, and disenfranchised people has never stopped. It's just taken on new forms. Lucky's story is full of pain, resilience, power, and hope. And I want to understand it all. Let's step into the walk-in. Before we get started, just a quick note. This conversation hits on topics that might be triggering for some listeners. Also, this conversation took place remotely, so please forgive some of the audio quality throughout. Lucky, thank you so much for joining me in the walk-in. You are a mixologist, amongst other things, uh, ye Jill of many trades, but I'm sure you know what the walk-in is, right? The walk-in refrigerator? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I've been in the industry long enough. Like, who doesn't know what the walk-in is? <laughs> You'd be surprised, but I think it's probably um, the more emotionally maladjusted people who don't know. If walk-ins are in your life, you probably are more emotionally stable than most because you've had somewhere you can go and scream from the top of your lungs and no one can hear you. That's real. That's real. Okay, so Lucky, I know that a lot of 
sustainability for those of us in the food and beverage industry is really rooted in relationships. It's the way we get work. It's the way we get resources. And quite frankly, it's just the way we like have community. These are the ways that we see our friends and try to make money at the same time. So they're important, these relationships. And we have a lot of the same ones. But you have a very good relationship with the James Beard Foundation, and it has very specific things about it. And I would love for you to tell me a little bit more about your relationship with the James Beard Foundation. Thank you for asking. I, like, I, uh, so I, I have a long history with James Beard Foundation. So I like originally just started going because I love, I love good food. Right. So I would go to uh, the events and I would be afforded the opportunity to experience food from like all over the world, from many different perspectives. And I fell in love with that aspect right away. And being an open out uh, trans person, experiencing much of that definitely built some of the connections that I have, both with like black food folks and people that I would just meet around the table. And I think sitting around the table, like you definitely reinforce some of the levels of like socioeconomic class and gender and race, et cetera, right? Like it reinforces uh, those things. And as a trans person, you know, with less access to, you know, privilege and power and resources, uh, it really like that ends up becoming your currency. And so I remember sitting there at the James Beard Foundation and asking a lot of questions about, you know, James Beard Foundation was an openly gay man. And so like looking at the breakdown of their organization and, you know, the whys and the where to's of such a thing. I was the first trans woman ever featured at the James Beard Foundation for uh, Stonewall 50. And like 50 years after Stonewall, and I'm the first trans woman to be featured at the James Beard House. And if you, you know, you you look at the board of trustees or the like senior management, like trans people should be in all areas of the agency. There should be a trans person on their board of directors. There should be trans people uh, within their senior staff. So, uh, you know, I was actually featured again just before COVID uh, broke down, you know, the, the entire industry. So I was featured again for International Women's Day, Talent Beyond Walls for, you know, women chefs and restauranteurs. So twice at the James Beard Foundation in less than a year, that was another magical event. That was literally a week before the entire city shut down. But my relationship with them has continued. You know, I've been very outspoken and vocal. And, you know, I think that, you know, people who are critical of these uh, changes that need to happen, right, because there is a lack of trans people uh, involved or et cetera, like is, is a problem. It is a problem. It needs to be addressed. And the people being critical of that ought to be pulled closer because you can trust them, right? If somebody's telling you to your face, like, these are some of the things that could create sustainable change on behalf of the queer community, um, you know, those are opportunities to, like, change the industry, right? Like, you're not going to change the industry by being critical and, and, and running off or not partnering with or having the tough conversation. So I have found myself in a number of conversations uh, with them in, in a, a very loving, direct way of like, these are some of the opportunities that you guys could have for growth. These relationships are important. Like being featured at the James Beard Foundation as a trans woman is currency. That is currency, but it's also not enough currency. Like a trans yes. person should actually be paid a living wage for that, because that's what equity looks like. And mm -hmm. not just them, like we're talking across the hospitality industry. Yes. Look at the wage gap for women. Just imagine what that's like for trans folks. So to like, you know, constantly be having these tough conversations because you love and believe in the work that they do. 
is huge. Like I don't have the same access to, you know, technology and resources and restaurants and liquor that some other people have, right? Like I look at the number of people who have been featured at the James Beard Foundation and people own restaurants or really have made a name for themselves. And like me, like I'm a trans girl who's working behind a bar at a museum who happens to have been doing a lot of this uh, free labor for so long that finally I've gotten my opportunity to like be a voice. And I think that the hospitality industry is the perfect place to create a pipeline to support trans folks. But, you know, I think it's important that we call out agencies that, you know, have a little uh, bit of growth to do. Yeah. Yeah. And also have more equity in the game because those are the ones that are really actually equipped to make changes. You know, it's the people in the power places. They have that power. FIFO. First in, first out. And with that being said, I want to kind of start by letting you know about the segments of this podcast. Our first segment is called FIFO. Do you know what FIFO means? First in, first out. That's right. In this case, it's just about you. I want you to tell us a little bit about young Lucky from back in the day. And then I want you to quickly get us up to date to what you're up to right now. You know, I actually was born in Ohio, raised in Michigan, you know, uh, in a nutshell, this is a really heavy stuff. Trigger warning for any folks that might be listening. Um, you know, I, a trans identified individual who was raised in a conservative area. So I put most of my childhood in the Detroit area, but I was sexually abused before I could walk. I was in a domestic violence shelter by the time I was like five or six in Detroit. I was sexually trafficked by the time I was 11 years old and I was living out of my car by the time I was 16. So I found that, you know, as an overachiever, the way that I dealt with a lot of that stuff was by helping others. And I found that the restaurant industry was where I found that like place to go, right? Like my first job was an overnight diner. So I worked all night at the overnight diner so that I wouldn't admit to myself, like I didn't identify as being homeless or disenfranchised because I was like that, like classic overachiever. I did, sure. you know, I, I think I got, you know, seven, uh, at least seven varsity letters, um, you know, so I was just involved everywhere. And then I started working in fine dining. I was looking for a way out. I came to New York, you know, young kid, because I knew this is where as a trans uh, identified individual, I would find a safe space. Um, and so I came to New York when I was uh, 21. It was just a few weeks before September 11th. I didn't know anybody here. And so naturally I looked for a place where I could find services, right? Like food and insecurity has been a huge thing in my life. And I, if I look back at uh, Detroit, I have many interviews with my mom because as soon as I came to New York, I wanted to do some of that uprooting of like my own history. And so I have interviews of my mom talking about how, I mean, we were so poor that she would mix like flour and water and she'd fry that up and she'd be like, what is that called? And I'm like, that's not called anything, Ma. Like, that's not called anything. That's called starving. You know, I mean, we really, as you know, little humans like engage in, you know, wicked yes. other food pr programs. And, you know, she'd parade the kids around to, you know, all the food pantries and the churches. So I knew churches was uh, where I was probably going to have access to food and support services. So when I came to New York, I, I started looking for a church where I could find access to, you know, food. 
right? We're talking food insecurity. So I found a, a church, you know, where, you know, at the time, Sylvia Rivera was running a food pantry. Uh, she was the director of mm-hmm. the food pantry of a church here in uh, New York City. And and on her deathbed, um, she brought all the lawyers to her deathbed and she was uh, brilliant. She started listing demands to the Empire State Pride agenda, you know, et cetera. And she, uh, you know, made the church promise to open uh, the doors at night for homeless LGBTQ youth. And I was hired in there. Did you... I'm sorry. T- did you have a relationship with Sylvia? Did you know her personally? Did you work together at all? I did not. I was a baby trans at the time. Mm-hmm. So I walked into the church and I was greeted by a trans man. Huge, right? Life mm-hmm. affirming. I was given uh, communion by sure. a black trans woman who, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I still know today. But I did not know Sylvia at the time. So that that was right around, um, you know, her decline in health. I was, you know, basically hired, you know, to run a shelter there in, in the church, you know, so it was the first of its kind, you know, Alley Forney Center got its start in that space, uh, Sylvia's place. We built a program citywide, um, statewide, and then nationally, you know, I helped write policy for runaway and homeless LGBTQ youth. And I worked there for about 10 years. And then I decided, you know, that in order for me to get to a place where, I took care of the other things in my life that mattered. And I found that, you know, running a program for homeless LGBTQ youth, I, you know, it was a 24-hour, you know, 365-day-a-year job. Like, I was constantly writing grants and doing, you know, amazing work, right? It was absolutely my dream job and, you know, definitely doing God's work there. But after 10 years, I was like, okay, like, I know what my next step is in this, like, self-care piece. Honestly, self-care to me was, like, I needed to be able to focus on my transition because I was out about being trans, but, like, I I needed to not just wrap my brain around it. I needed to wrap my arms around it, and I couldn't do that. Yeah, you needed to get your body involved. Yeah. Yeah, you had to get your body involved. And and you're right. I was a social worker for many years. That work is all-encompassing. It can be very overwhelming. The burnout rate is extremely high. I ran a shelter in New York City also, which was unlike any other social work experience I had ever had, okay? Uh, And I had a lot from Michigan, but going to New York was another level. Running a homeless shelter for homeless women and employable homeless women and women with mental health issues was a challenge. And it, it took every piece of me, my mind, my body, my soul, even when you're not there, you know? So I get that it probably left little time. And you were coming to New York. So you were just like, New York is where you like really realize who you are. Because then you realize you can be whoever that is, right? So you needed to realize yourself, um, but you still needed to make money. Is this about the time when you were like, okay, I'm going to step outside of this work that is God's work, but it's not where my heart lies right now, right? It really took some soul searching, like post shelter, because I, uh, my entire identity was wrapped around that agency, right? Because it really was Mm -hmm. my dream job. You know, I definitely did more in 10 years of my life than most people do in a lifetime. Um, And I'm so grateful for that. In that time, you know, my first book came out. I was in the top 40 under 40 advocates, uh, under 40 years of age for the 40 year anniversary of Stonewall alongside like Rachel Maddow and Sia and Dustin Lance Black, you know, so I did some amazing things. So my immediate inclination post shelter was like, I like I continued to want to wrap my identity around helping everybody else because I didn't have the tools to like wrap my arms around myself or my own identity. So the trans identity was there when I was like four and five years old, you know, I spoke the words like I want to be a girl and 
it was not in a safe space to like support that transition. And so that looked like a number of things throughout my childhood. And by the time I was like 17, I was on the front page of the papers. Um, you know, I did a little uh, lookalike contest here and there because like, you know, a women impersonation was the closest I could get to being, you know, my true identity. But even yeah. so, like I tucked that all into the bed and, you know, it was easier to show up for everybody else and not for myself, right? Like I had built my survival around doing for everybody else. All right. So you're in New York. You, you've you decided, you've made this conscious decision to leave the shelter, which has been kind of your whole formative experience in New York. And then you decide to go into hospitality? Like, how did that happen? I knew, you know, from all the way back, you know, in the 90s, when I was like chilling at like diners and fine dining restaurants, like I knew that I could find a job if I just rolled up into a restaurant on a Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday with a resume, I'd have a job the same day. And honestly, did I want an overnight job? Absolutely not. But I, right. I, I took it because that's all, all they had and I needed work. And I needed to make coin in order so that I could do the rest of the things that were important to me. Like I couldn't wrap my brain around my gender identity if I couldn't feed myself and house myself. Mm-hmm. So I've been, you know, at uh, New York Historical Society. So it's the oldest museum in the city of New York. I've been there for uh, going on seven years, you know, minus this furlough mixing drinks. So, you know, I, I fell in love with mixing drink, doing the cocktail of the day. And like, I love history. Like, as you can tell, like I'm, I'm a storyteller, right? Like that being a storyteller mm-hmm. really got me through uh, the streets um, and, and, and what I went through in life. And so I, uh, at the bar, you have a captive audience, right? And either you're going to be right. sitting there being their therapist, which I have no interest, like you're not paying <laughs> me therapist money, Right? That's when, right. When you're sitting behind my bar. So, uh, but you have a captive audience. So I, I decided to use that, you know, not only for like historical references behind drinks uh, and information. So every time an exhibition rolled into the museum, I would do a, a drink and some historical references, but I'd also do some activism behind, you know, trans related stuff, women in hospitality. And like, you know, I really carved out some space there and people, Loved it, right? Like, you know, I figured that, you know, people were paying me for that sort of stuff. You know, they love my cocktails, obviously, and and coming up with a cocktail a day day on the spot every single day with a little like historical references. Like people come back and they really enjoy the experience. Hospitality is a universal language, like anywhere. Yes. You know, I've traveled a lot. Like it's the one thing that like transcends yes. language barriers. It, like hospitality, like when it's done right and it comes from the heart stuff is a universal language. And I fell in love with that. That's so true, uh, yeah. Pairing a little historical uh, knowledge and, um, you know, advocacy behind mixing a drink. What does that look like? What does that, what does that even sound like? Like, that's the most interesting intersection I've heard. Like, cocktails, Hmm. history, activism. Facts. Facts. So, uh, for example, right? Stonewall 50. Perfect opportunity for, like, lots of people to do um, major... uh, uh, like exhibitions and events, right? Stonewall mm-hmm. 50 is coming and, you know, Stonewall, Marsha P., you know, uh, Sylvia Rivera, like the history of, of both these individuals is is something, you know, I've centered my la- labor around trans women of color like Sylvia Rivera and Marsha P. Johnson showed us how to do back when, you know, uh, queer rights began, right? Right. Um, you know, so I've centered my labor around educating people on uh, on 
the history, right? Just in a general way, even before I was behind a bar. So Stonewall 50 is coming up, right? A perfect opportunity for me to like really shine. I brought um, little buttons of every person who was involved in the Stonewall riot that I could think of. So it was not only Sylvia and Marsha, it was also um, Victoria Cruz. It was Miss Major. Like I had buttons of all of them at different ages in their career and, and what they did. And I would wear them every single day. And, you know, I would go up to the staff, both front of house, back of house. And I'd be like, who's this? Who's this? And like, I would, I would quiz them. And so ultimately a lot of people got to know uh, who these people were and how does that treat, you know, translate into drinks. So the staff came to me and said, you know, we, we have this possibility for this uh, contract, you know, uh, so Ilgata was wanted to do an event, but they wanted to keep the money in the community. So they wanted to use my trans identity and the fact that I was a mixologist there for New York Historical Society of Constellation Culinary Group to like get the contract for both their foundation and their for-profit to like, have their boards meet, right? Right. And uh, part of that was um, they wanted to give me a couple of minutes because they used my identity to get the contract. So they wanted to give me a couple minutes behind the mic. So mm-hmm. what I did was I, I made a cocktail. I called it the Star Molotov. Mm-hmm. So Star, I mean, we all know Star Street Transvestite Action Revolutionaries, a program that both Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera uh, created. You know, Sylvia Rivera was a founding member of both the Gay Activist Alliance and the Gay Liberation Front. And by 1973, when that famous speech of her in like Washington Square Park uh, yes. happened, you know, the, the trans girls were kicked out of both agencies because the rest of the queer population didn't want, you know, the trans folks, you know, back in the day, they would have said the freaks. They couldn't get their rights if the freaks were involved. Yeah. Um, and so Sylvia Rivera and Marsha P. Johnson started a program called Star. And so mm-hmm. calling my drink a Star Molotov was the perfect opportunity to discuss at the bar, right? I come up with a delicious cocktail. And so now I'm talking to all of the executive board of both the foundation and the for-profit of uh, Ilgata and, you know, asking them, right. Calling it star Molotov, you know, doing a little quizzing of the, you know, queer folks. And so it provides me the perfect opportunity to give my little elevator, like uh history pitch to, you know, these folks while they're sitting and drinking my drink, which I, I think had uh, blackberries. I believe that was a, a rum uh, drink, but yeah, like I got my couple of minutes at that mic, which of course they just wanted to use my, my identity. Let's be real. They were selling the narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, they just wanted to use my uh, identity, but I knew that was my opportunity to really drive the information home. And so yeah. in the like one to two minutes, I sold them on the his- history. You know, people were like weeping. I got asked to speak at their uh, major foundation following that. So I generally use the bar and my cocktail of the day to mm-hmm. highlight some information. Advocate and educate. Nuku makes high quality cookware and bakeware for home chefs. And the products are so good, even their own employees can't get enough. Here's Jean Horvath, the vice president of custom and specialty products, raving about her four quart stock pot. The one piece that I really love is our four quart stock pot. It's perfect for so many things, soups, pastas, sauces, and it's not too big and it's not too small. When I make my holiday cream pies, this gives me perfect results every single time. For perfect cream pies and more, grab your own Nuku. Nuku cookware and bakeware is available on Wayfair and at select specialty retailers and cooking schools. 
Through the month of October, enjoy a special promo when you visit nuku.com and enter promo code KITCHEN at checkout for a 35% savings off their stockpots. That's nucu.com promo code KITCHEN. Henry David Thoreau once said, what is the use of a house if you haven't got a tolerable planet to put it on? And that's the kind of social character that Room and Board brings to every product they offer. Natural materials are an important part of their furniture design. So they respect the materials and always source them responsibly. It's nice to have a beautiful dining room table, right? But a dining room table that is beautiful and sustainably sourced, that's great. For more info, design inspiration, and helpful advice, go to roomandboard.com. Samuel Adams founder Jim Cook has always felt indebted to the restaurant industry. They gave him a shot way before Samuel Adams' Boston Lager became a household name. Restaurants have been my customers since I first started, and I never forgot all of the people who kind of adopted me back when we were nothing. They put in our beer when they didn't need to. And I always promised myself that someday I was going to find an opportunity to pay that back. When the COVID-19 pandemic hit, Jim got his chance to pay them back. Together with the Greg Hill Foundation, Samuel Adams quickly created the Restaurant Strong Fund and raised millions of dollars for the workers who needed it the most. For more information, visit restaurantstrong.org. Maybe just towards the early part of 2019, I watched the documentary about Marsha P. Johnson, like literally just on a fluke. I was like, oh my, this is amazing. And that I think that was how I come to know the story behind Marsha P. Johnson. You cannot live in New York and not know who who she is and was. Um, but I also was actually at Stonewall during Pride when gay marriage became legal. It was a very monumental, like we we were literally just walking down the street and and then chaos erupted. Like we were like, what's happening? And people were like, it's legal. We can love each other. It was like having been a part of that one moment in time and in history really made me become a lot more aware about the history and privileges and rights, right, that we have, like who paved the way as a Black woman, you know, as a Black child. If you live in an inner city, more than likely it's drilled into you about the civil rights movement and all the people who paved the way in Detroit, you know, Rosa Parks, of course, you know, and you learn about Dr. King and the source. But it's, you know, I don't know that I had that same experience as a queer person with knowing the history, like no one ever presented it to me in the way that civil rights was presented to me as a black person. You know, a lot of this um, history I had to find out on my own. I remember going to New Orleans for Mardi Gras and one night it was just raining so hard. One day I decided to stay in the hotel and there was a whole documentary about how the LGBTQ community was treated in New Orleans during Mardi Gras. Very similar to Stonewall, right? All these global experiences that probably ignited the fire that was Stonewall. Um, So I'm so glad that you're making it important to you and a part of your narrative to highlight history because the history is so, so important. It's literally 
the only way we can move forward is if we know where we've come from. But tell me for, quickly, though, you said they had an agenda. You know, they wanted to use your image for this. Do you feel like there's that tokenism, no pun intended, is a two-sided coin? Right? Like, one a part of you is like, I know that this is their agenda, but the other part of you is like, this is also an opportunity for me to grab a hold of and turn it into something else. Do you have those? I have those experiences. Do you have those experiences? Absolutely. Like I, you know, I, I absolutely perfected the, like, you know, my elevator pitch, yeah. right. Long time ago, because I knew uh, there was going to be very few opportunities that really mattered in my life where like, I could absolutely um, use that and use my voice, right. Use my voice and my power. 35 years old is the average um, life expectancy of trans women of color. And, you know, like that's, that's incredible. Oh. 35 years old. You look at, you know, there's been at least 22 um, recorded deaths in this country so far in 2020. Yes. I think there was 27 recorded uh, deaths last year. Unsolved. Like, it's Unsolved. It's unsolved, uninvestigated. They have no interest. No interest whatsoever. You know, and I I really think it's both the visibility, you know, so I saw the visibility of like, you know, uh, LGBT folks uh, happen kind of in the media and like you get a few successful like people with a a certain amount of like privilege and power that the rest of the trans folks don't have in this country. And what happens is like, Kids are coming out younger and younger in spaces where there's yes, no support for them, right? Still. And so this increased visibility is great because we get to mm-hmm. see ourselves, right, on TV and such. But like, if you don't have services, right, food, employment, uh, healthcare, housing, like you got yeah. you got a problem. Yeah. Healthcare, you do have a problem, you know. And uh, you know, so you mentioned the like same sex marriage, right? Hennessey Gutierrez like stopped President Obama at the White House for that event and was like, "We are dying." Even in the queer community, like the the most amount of labor that the majority of the queer community will do is like say somebody's name after they pass. That's a pretty low bar. Yes. Where are you hiring and you know putting Oof. your money if that is the current bar? Like you are dragging my right now. I'm willingly walking into this drag. I definitely am not doing as much as I could do. I don't even know what I could do, but I know that I could do more. And this, wow, this conversation is, whew, is hitting me in my core. And I th- thank you for just like even putting these words out. I hope that when when people are listening to this this episode, I hope it's I hope it sparks something in them, like you just sparked something in me just now. The wall slide. So, Lucky, this is a part of the conversation that we like to call the wall slide. I mean, we've talked about so many potential wall slide moments today. I don't even know that we really need to, like, formally (laughs) introduce it. But I read something about your time at Sylvia's Place, and you have had to see some of your former residents uh, from the shelter end up back on the streets, back on drugs, suicide even, and so I don't want to define your wall slide moment for you, but if you could just tell me about a point in your entire life career of living, <laughs> a moment that you feel really kind of like broke you down and maybe even it could even have turned out to be the moment that structured you into who you are today. I don't know, but tell me about what would be a wall slide moment for you. It's a hard one. You know, that's, you know, I, 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 <laughs> 
I, I want to, I want to like come from my heart, but in order to do that, I need to like guard myself, you know? So I'm going to say the wall slide moment for me, uh, was being able to, uh, overcome my identity in a way that my mom could finally accept who I was as a human. And that took a lot of work. Um, I saw my life going in a direction where I could very well kind of follow the path that, you know, they did. And, you know, growing up, like, I didn't want it to be anything like them. That's why I ran so far and so fast at such a young age. And uh, doing that work at the vital time in my life was transformative. You know, it was hard, but it was transformative. And it really allowed me to stand on my own, too. You know, I, like all of those years, I kind of used, I used the narrative to like separate myself from other people. I used the story to, to my advantage and I didn't work with the story. I didn't own any part of who I was. Uh, and so when I got to the place where I saw myself, uh, you know, my mother and myself, and I needed to do that work, um, just before she died of cancer, it was huge. You know, I, I really like did the work not mm. only on my life, but like with her uh, prior to her passing, which is the only reason why I think I'm able to like stand here today and like do all of the work that I do that comes from my heart. So at that point in my life, I think none of the, the work that I was doing, although it was coming from a genuine place and a place of like, I'm providing for mm -hmm. you what I never had for myself. It was the opportunity to like to connect with my core so that I could do uh, meaningful work in both activism in my like own life uh, for other trans individuals. Because like I can't do that work if I if I haven't connected to my own core and done yeah. that work on myself. I appreciate that vulnerability. It resonates with me of having to reconcile relationships with parents as it probably does with most queer individuals. I will go as far as to say, I think that if my father ever listens to this podcast, it'll probably be the first time he's ever heard me ever refer to myself or use the words queer as it relates to myself. So, mm. hey dad, surprise, if you get it, That's um, real. if you hear it. <laughs> I was so <laughs> surprised with my mom. End of her life, I mean, she hadn't been diagnosed with cancer at that, that point, but like I really saw this trajectory where I did the work on myself and it changed the relationship yes. that I had with her. And she was able to be, you know, claim me in an entirely new way. She was, you know, she was so proud of who mm -hmm, I was mm -hmm. as her daughter, like as a trans person in the world and in a place where that's so conservative. Like, let's be real. Like at her funeral, like I, I faced so much transphobia oh my from my own family uh, and the support was not there. And so to have my mom come full circle and to like really have those moments at the end of her life. And, you know, when I saw mm -hmm. her last, I knew it was the last time I was going to see her. I knew it. There was just some part of me that said, this is the last time I'm going to see my mom alive. And, you know, within, within a year, she, she had passed and to like walk through um, and make myself available to those that, that like biological family, but like not put myself in, in harm's way. So to be able to, create those like healthy boundaries and be like, nah, like mm -hmm. I can love you, but I can yes. love you from a distance. Like I gave you the opportunity to show up for me and this is what it would look like for me. And if you're not able to do that, like I have my chosen and proven family to do all that with. 
Yeah, I, I am living my best life and people really love me. I have so like I do so much community building in the trans community that like I am carried and I am loved exactly the way that I am. But to hear mm-hmm. that from my own mother before she yeah. passed, that was a gift. And that that required the wall slide moment. Wow. Thank you for that. Oh, wow. Lucky this conversation. This talk, this time with you has been so much more than I ever could have imagined. I feel, I don't even have words for how I feel. And that is rare. I always have the words, but I have no words today. Wow. You wanted me to bring my whole self. I (sighs) I understood the purpose of this. And so, you know, this is sacred, you know, and so I'm, I'm giving it. I've learned so much on my own podcast. I learned so much from you. I, wow. Like, hands down, I'm smarter today because of you, Lucky Michaels. Thank you so much. A moment in the walk-in. Okay, Lucky, this is a point in our conversation where one of our listeners writes in a letter to ask you a question. Some advice, perhaps, you know, maybe just they just need someone to drop a little jewel on them. And you are very good at that. So I think this will be easy for you. I have a letter from Chris in Vegas. He wants to step into the walk-in with you. And he wants to know how to go about being open with his family. He says, Dear Lucky, I'm 17 years old and I have been wanting to come out to my family for at least two years. I think that they already know but I want to do it formally, but without making a big deal out of it. I don't want to make a scene. I just want to identify and I want my family to be able to accept me and be involved. Can you tell me some advice on how to do that? This, you know, is very near and dear to me. You know, I got a lot of people, you know, your age calling me for for many, many years about this exact same thing. So uh, first and foremost, I want to let you know that you're loved and that there's an entire uh, community of support for you out there. If you don't already have it, definitely tap into those resources so that you uh, are in a safe space when you uh, go to your family. So for me, I can really, you know, tell you, like, the moment I came out to my mother was so precious, right? Like, I knew that she was conservative, she wasn't going to be having it, etc. But I honored myself and my relationship enough to make to make it a moment. And so for me, what that looked like was I was like listening to the music on on a bunk bed in my room and it felt like the right moment. I called my mom in and I, you know, had her lay down next to me and I and I just said, Hey, this is what's going on for me. And like that doing it that way, I respected our relationship. So, you know, I would take a look at the relationship that you have with like your mom, uh, you know, your biological mom, your biological father, whatever your family unit looks like, and and do the, do each of the relationship justice. They probably already know anyway, right? Like, let's be real. My mom probably knew ever since I said I wanted to be a girl when I was five years old. So yeah, like honor the relationship, pull them aside, you know, just just be like, hey, mom, like this is what's up. Like I love you, and I, I love and respect you enough that I want to have this conversation with you and and I want this relationship to continue to grow. All right, Chris, there you have it. I think that's some really good advice. If you don't have community, we're going to provide some links in the show notes. 
so that you can have a, a place where you can reach out to have safe space and to start building community for yourself and for everyone who's listening. Um, Lucky, it's been such an honor and a pleasure. This really just kind of like opened up our friendship door so much more. And I hope that you know that I consider you a huge part of my community. And I hope that you know that I am so honored to be a part of yours as well. You've lent your voice to so many before you were even really ready to advocate for yourself. And that that sort of selflessness is very rare. It's very hard to find. It's kind of like, it's almost the epitome of like faking it until you make it a little bit. You know, it's like, until I can figure out who I am, I'll help these people figure out who they are. And maybe I'll pick up something along the way. I mean, that it happens that way. We don't always realize ourselves for ourselves first. Sometimes we witness it in others first, you know? It's like a frame of reference. Um, and hopefully it turns out well for us. And in this case, it has turned out beautifully. I love your story of evolution. I'm so glad that you're sharing it with me. And I cannot wait to see what you're going to bring when COVID is over. Like, I know you're probably just in that place, like stewing up, brewing up all kinds of good ideas. I can't wait to see what you do. All sorts of stuff. We have a saying, well, and I want to say maybe um, it was Erica Badu, who I heard say it first, but she says, if you see me and a bear having a fight, help the bear. That's how I feel about you, Lucky. I hope somebody helps that bear if they're ever in a fight with you because they won't stand a chance. Yeah. You're such a beast. I love I'm a, it. I'm a powerhouse. I love it. I'm a powerhouse. I thank, yes. thank you so much for seeing it and like <laughs> and giving me the space, like, you know, calling me up when, you know, it came time. Yeah, it was a long time coming. We made it. Oh, thank you so much. I mean, it's been a really amazing to actually to get to know you a little bit better mm-hmm. by like connecting with you on a human level. Um, and, you know, I, I really think that, you know, these relationships that we have building one another up out in the industry are major. This is job security. This is what job security looks like for somebody who's a trans identified individual. It's these relationships that moving forward yeah. uh, open up opportunities. These relationships that are really kind of uh, building a new and more equitable future for the hospitality industry. Amen. Ah, or as Andre 3000 says, ah, woman. Yes. Ah, woman. I like that. To learn more about Lucky's incredible advocacy work, follow her on Instagram. She's at Lucky Michaels. If you want a moment in the walk-in, send us your questions. You can email us at thewalkin at americastestkitchen.com. You can send anything you need advice on, from the personal to the professional and everything in between. I'll only use your first name on the show for privacy. That's thewalkin at americastestkitchen.com. One more quick thing. If you like The Walk-In and you want more of these real, raw, unfiltered stories and conversations about the food world, please be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. And while you're there, why not tell us how you feel? Leave us a rating or write us a review. It really helps other people find the show. The Walk-In is created and hosted by my daughter, Elle Simone Scott. Today's show was produced by Caitlin Kelleher. Our producers include Hen Margolis, Caroline Rickard, and Sarah Joyner. 
scoring, sound design, and mixing by Matt Boynton of Ultraviolet Audio. Our theme music was composed by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Nina Gallant shot the cover art. Olivia Sheldon and Daniela Barrera brought the design. Our production manager is Diane Knox. Ivana Strawin is our intern. Jack Bishop is the Chief Creative Officer of America's Test Kitchen. David Nussbaum is our CEO. Thanks again to our sponsors, Blue Shield California, Nuku, Room and Board, Escoffier, Samuel Adams, Berkshire Bank, and Valley Fig Growers. The Walk-In is a production of America's Test Kitchen. <laughs>